Welcome to Balanced Black Girl, a podcast dedicated to mental, physical, and emotional health from the Black woman's perspective. Tune in to hear from Black woman health and wellness experts giving the approachable advice you need to help you feel your best. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Balanced Black Girl Podcast. I am your host, Les, and I'm honored to be sharing this space with you. So right before we released this podcast, we actually had our very first live workshop, which was a class that I taught on self-care for stress management. And I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who came to the class. It was such a fun, engaging session. You all asked great questions and I loved getting to spend an afternoon with you. And I really, really hope that the session was helpful for you and that you walked away with some good tools to help you manage your stress. Because with these times that we're living in, we need tools. We need all of the tools. So we're going to be planning more workshops in the future. Make sure you stay tuned for that here on the podcast, as well as on social media. We're at Balanced Black Girl Podcast on Instagram. Also in our newsletter, which you can subscribe to at balanceblackgirl.com slash subscribe. We send out more information about events and exclusive things happening. So if you want to be in the loop with all things Balanced Black Girl, those are the places that you can find us. So this year, a big theme, I don't know if theme is the right word, but uh, part of, I think, one of the ways people have woken up, I should say, is around racism. A term that was thrown out a lot this year is anti-racism, where a lot of folks, particularly our non-Black peers, are understanding the ways in which there's a lot of ingrained anti-Blackness in the world. And it's really, really important that we continue breaking down these systems of anti-blackness in all forms. And I think we're all very familiar with racism, with conversations around racism. But as we continue breaking down these systems of anti-blackness, it's really, really important that colorism is a part of the conversation as well. And colorism goes so much deeper than dating preferences, even though that's definitely an example. And deeper than concerns over being or feeling black enough for a specific space or place and time. Again, because what does that mean? It's, it's completely subjective, but for a lot of folks, they have that experience where they feel that way. Um, but colorism, it goes so, so much deeper. It is social. It is cultural. It is systemic. It's global. And in our pursuit of black liberation, it has to go. It, it has to. It's a non-negotiable. It has to go right out the window with racism. And among our community here at Balanced Black Girl, we have sisters from across the diaspora. And it's really, really important to me that these conversations happen in this space. And I hope it's important to you as well. And with that in mind, I'm honored to share today's episode with you. 
Our guest today is Dr. Sarah L. Webb. She's currently an assistant professor in the Department of English and Modern Languages at the University of Illinois Springfield. Dr. Webb first wrote publicly about colorism in the summer of 2011 in a post titled Colorism, Five Reasons I Haven't Said Much Yet. After seeing the interest, positive responses, and some negative reactions to her early writing on colorism, Dr. Webb recognized the need for a dynamic platform dedicated entirely to this issue. She also saw the need to focus on solutions, and so she launched the blog Colorism Healing in July of 2013. Through Colorism Healing, Dr. Webb raises critical awareness about colorism as a global issue. She also fosters individual and collective healing and provides systemic solutions by producing, facilitating, and curating creative and critical work. I am so honored to have Dr. Webb on the show today. I am such a big fan of hers. I admire her and her work so much and really, really loved this conversation learned so much from this conversation and am excited to share it with you and continue the conversation with you. So let's jump in. Dr. Sarah L. Webb, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yes, it's an honor to have you. So before we dive in, I would love for my audience to get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what brought you to the work you do? Absolutely. So I am from originally, well, I was born in Austin, Texas, but we moved to Louisiana where my parents are originally from when I was six months old. So I just say I'm a Louisianian. (laughs) South Louisiana to be exact, Baton Rouge. And I grew up experiencing colorism as a dark-skinned Black woman, but especially growing up in a household with a lighter-skinned sister and a light-skinned mom, that made it very apparent to me that I was being treated differently than, you know, my sister in particular, because we're only three years apart, so it was very easy for people to compare us, or we spent a lot of time together because we were close in age, and it was very evident, right? And even comments like, you know, y'all can't really be sisters, you know? And we do have the same mother and father. People say, well, maybe y'all have different dads, or maybe somebody's adopted, right? Or, you know, I, at most, I would be like the cousin, maybe, but could never really be the actual sister. But fortunately, in my household, no one differentiated about color. And there was always very close-knit ties. And, you know, to this day, my mom and my sister are my two best friends. You know, when I eventually did speak up about colorism, my close relationship with them definitely shaped the way I approached the topic. But for most of my childhood, I didn't talk about it. It was something I observed. And my mom even said that I called it out one time when some relatives were praising my sister, talking about how beautiful she was. And I said, that's because she's light skinned. And I don't remember saying that. (laughs) But apparently I was maybe five years old. But other than that instance that my mom told me about, I felt like I couldn't talk about it. Or maybe, you know, it's just me. Am I like crazy? Uh, Is this really happening? Do other people see it? You know, like not hearing anyone else talk about it. Like no one else seems to be making this observation. So maybe I should just be quiet. 
and then at two, like as an adult, other things became more of a priority for me, you know, like going to college, you know, looking for a job. And so I kind of thought it was, I was done with it. Like maybe it was over with, but you know, in my early twenties, I found myself still getting triggered by certain things. And I was like, man, you know, I thought I was kind of done with this issue. I mean, as I was telling you earlier, I did live in California for a while when I was getting my master's degree in writing. And I decided to come back to Louisiana to teach at a high school, right? Because I, I wanted to teach and it was important to me to give back to the community that had shaped me in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to teach in my hometown and particularly at inner city schools, right? And so it was teaching at a high school, a predominantly black high school in Baton Rouge, where I saw teenagers, 14, 15, 16 year olds, saying really colorist things. They would say things like, I don't like this picture because I look too black, or I wish I was light skinned like my mom. I even had one student say, I don't like dark skinned people when I first meet them. <laughs> and the crazy thing is that they were saying these things in front of me, like with an earshot of me. And I was like, that showed me how normalized it was, the fact that they just took for granted that, well, even dark-skinned people would feel this way. Or no one's gonna comment about how strange you know, my perspective is. And so seeing how deeply ingrained it was in that younger generation is really what prompted me to speak out publicly, right? Because I realized it wasn't just my own sensitivity. It wasn't just me making things up. You know, and so I kind of felt like I didn't want to see colorism continue to infect generation after generation of people. It's like, if this is still in high schools 10 years after I've left high school, then somebody's got to do something, right? We got to do something. And so again, being a writer, you know, that's what my training is in. That's my, you know, one of my passions. And I'm currently, currently I'm an English professor, right? So I do teach creative writing. I decided that the best way for me to approach the subject was through writing. And so that's when the blog started and Colorism Healing and all that came to be. Thank you so much for sharing pieces of your story. There were a few things that jumped out to me. The first being what you said to your mom when you were five years old, that observation that you made based off the comments of your family, I think really goes to show how smart and perceptive kids are. When they hear those messages, they know exactly what's going on. You knew exactly what was going on. Yes. And actually, kids are probably more likely to notice those things. Just biologically, kids are wired to pay close attention to what the adults are doing and saying in their lives as a matter of survival. Like that age range, kids are just naturally, psychologically, biologically speaking, they're just naturally sponges. They're naturally doing everything they can to learn about life and about how to be human in the world from the adults around them, right? Whereas an adult might hear something and because we have a million different distractions and, you know, we already have like, you know, our own stuff to worry about. We might not even notice or recognize or hear certain things, but because kids are just naturally observant and they, they study the world out of necessity, right? Just to learn how to be. So yeah, we definitely can't assume that, oh, they're too young to know or they're too young to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the other things I would love to touch on as well is you talked about your experience thinking like, is this just me? Am I being sensitive? Am I 
you know, am I reading too much into this? I'm so glad that you mentioned that and also mentioned like, no, (laughs) you were not, because I think it is such a good example of some of those ways that we can question things within ourselves. We can almost kind of gaslight ourselves a little bit and think like, am I really feeling this? Am I seeing this for what it is? And I appreciate you talking about that. Absolutely. It's very real. So when you started colorism healing, when you started writing and sharing about your experiences with colorism, what initially happened when you started sharing those messages? Did you receive a lot of people saying, thank you? Yes, I experienced this too. Did you get pushback? What was the initial reception when you started sharing? Yeah, I love that question. I started writing about colorism for the first time in 2011, which was two years before Colorism Healing officially launched. So I had another platform kind of like you and I was just, but I was doing random things. I had never tried blogging before. So a colorism post just came up, you know, as something that I needed to talk about. And with it being 2011, that was right around the time that Dark Girls documentary was coming out. So I was teaching high school and hearing my students say these colorist things. And then I see online that there's a documentary coming out about being a dark-skinned woman. And I'm like, maybe it's safe to speak. (laughs) Maybe now it's safe to speak. Mm -hmm. Maybe now I don't have to gaslight myself because here's this like major production saying everything that I've been feeling and thinking anyway. And so that really gave me permission, I think, to write that first blog post. And I've written about writing that first blog post because I tell people it took me 30 minutes to hit publish. I was hovering, just sitting in front of the laptop, hovering around the publish button, and I kept like saying, no, 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 not yet. (laughs) Palms were sweating. My heart was racing a little bit. I had to text my mom for some moral support. Like, I'm about to put this out there. And actually, the first post was about why I had stayed silent for so long. And so I talk about, like, you know, I saw the preview for Dark Girls, and so now I'm going to talk about it. But first, I want to explain why it took me so long to talk about it. And I did like maybe two or three more posts following up on that initial one. And so sharing it on Facebook at the time, I had a lot of people saying, oh, this is so interesting. I had never really thought about this before. It reminds me of some experiences I've had, you know, and of course, with this being my first blog, all those people were family and friends, (laughs) like my actual, you know, inner circle of people. But there was one, a couple, two responses in particular, but one in particular was from a very fair-skinned Black woman that I had met while in grad school at California. And she was very upset that I was talking about colorism. And she was using choice words, some expletives, um, (laughs) you know, in the post. And, you know, kind of saying, well, first of all, you know, we barely get crumbs, you know what I mean? Like, why does it matter if there's a difference? If there, if there is a difference, it's barely a difference. Or, you know, there are more important issues, you know, there's war going on and children are starving. Like, why would you waste our time talking about something so petty? And I was shocked. I was so shocked. And I realized that Maybe subconsciously, I expected that reaction, and that's why it was so scary to speak up about it. But to actually see that reaction was very eye-opening. Also, comments like, some people just need something to be mad about. Like, just go love yourself and shut up, basically. (laughs) But I'm glad, though, that I recognize that instead of letting 
that forced me to retreat. I realized that I was breaking ground in some way, right? That that trigger or something signified or signaled to me that there was more to unpack there for people to have such a strong visceral reaction to my little, you know, innocent, you know, maybe two visits a month blog, (laughs) you know, like there's something we need to talk about here. (laughs) I love what you just said though, about instead of retreating, deciding to break that new ground. I love that. I love that. I think that it's very, very interesting. Those responses that come from opening up conversations about colorism. That's something that I would definitely love to talk to you about. And I think a lot of that comes from people not actually understanding what colorism is Mm -hmm. and having just a lot of convoluted definitions and understanding of what actually constitutes as colorism. Yes. So should we get into that? (laughs) Yeah, let's get into that. (laughs) Okay. So we know that Alice Walker, maybe we don't know, let me not say we know, but um, so Alice Walker coined the term, right? She kind of put the term out there, colorism. And so we refer, we rely on her as the basis for our definition. She said it's prejudicial or preferential treatments of people who are the same race based on their skin tone, right? And I think that, you know, I saw an Instagram post that reminded us all that colorism is not just prejudice against, but it's also preference for. (laughs) Um, So prejudicial and preferential treatments. And, um, you know, since then, we've also looked at, you know, mitigating factors like hair texture or, you know, the size and shape of your nose and eye color and things like that. Um, A lot more discussions about how gender plays a role into colorism. But it is a system, right, that privileges proximity to whiteness, right, because it's steeped in racism and white supremacy, right? That is what fuels colorism, that gives birth to colorism, is the notion and the belief that a lot of Black people internalize throughout our history here in the United States and worldwide, you know, that whiteness was superior to blackness in various ways, right? That was the narrative that European colonists put out there. And by force of the conditions that we lived in, a lot of our ancestors, you know, were susceptible to believing that or being conditioned to that belief. And so that system not only values lighter skin or more European phenotypes or features in terms of beauty and the aesthetics of it, but those features are also associated with higher intelligence, right? And higher levels of trustworthiness and competence. And you're less likely to be negatively stereotyped the more you look like you have European ancestry in you, right? And so I think understanding that colorism works in parallel with racism is something that even today in 2020, people are still waking up to. People are still waking up to that fact that as much as I'm upset by racism, colorism is like on the other side of the track, but right, but they're going in the same direction. They're doing the same things just with your physical appearance versus the label on your birth certificate. Mm, I love that distinction and that 
analogy for how colorism and racism are very parallel in that way. I saw recently, and I'm, oh, I wish I could remember. I'll make sure I link it in the show notes, but I saw a really interesting post on Instagram that was talking about some of the ways we within our own community will gaslight folks talking about colorism in ways that very much mirror white fragility, which I thought was interesting because I do see that a lot, a lot, a lot. So I'm curious, you know, for folks, as we are continuing to have these conversations about colorism, as we are continuing to initiate conversations about colorism because they're so important, when we experience that pushback from people, right, that that does kind of have those same echoings of white fragility, even if it's not coming from a white person, maybe victimizing from their own individual situation, not being able to see that, yes, maybe they have experienced things that were hurtful or harmful. They can still have experienced those things and had that be valid and also still experience privilege. Both of those things can be true at the same time. And I think people have a hard time understanding that multiple things can be true at once. Um, (laughs) How do you recommend navigating through pushback with those conversations? Yeah, so I think I have, you know, almost a decade of dealing with pushback. And so my approach has changed over time. (laughs) The first thing I would recommend for other people, especially if you're just starting to speak more publicly about colorism or, you know, broaching broaching broaching, broaching that subject for the first time with family and friends, is to be aware for yourself when the other person is actually open to the discussion. And I think that's self-care for you as the speaker, for you as the one who's raising the issue. It's self-care to know, like, is it worth going on this journey with that person, right? Or is am I going to drain myself with no results, with no ROI on, on that? Like, am I going to give all of myself and that person will still willfully choose their ignorance? So kind of, you know, having some discernment in that regard, look for signs that they're actually thinking, that they're actually processing. Are they, you know, nodding every now and then, like asking genuine questions? And so if they're, if they aren't, right, so this is like the little uh, flow chart. So if they are clearly being willfully ignorant and just don't want to open up or listen, I suggest you practice self-care and move on. If they are open to listening, but maybe the pushback comes from just not knowing, right? Just a lack of awareness, right? One of the pushbacks is that we should be focusing on racism. Now is not a good time to talk about colorism, especially, you know, in the wake of recent police killings and things like that. I've had people say that, you know, of of, this is the wrong time. We need to show a united front, right? So one, a couple of things I say in terms of that pushback is that, again, Colorism is doing all the same things in our community that racism is doing, right? There's pay inequality, there's wealth inequality, there's educational inequality, there's inequality in terms of health outcomes. And so if you're upset that, you know, black children get suspended at higher rates than white children, you should also be upset that dark-skinned children get suspended at higher rates than light-skinned children, right? Um, So that's one response. And then another response is that especially to the this is divisive and we need to be united conversation is that no colorism itself is dividing us the conversation is how we address the divide right it's not that the conversation is the division but colorism has already divided us we are we're already not in unity if we don't address colorism right 
other forms of pushback. And I'm not sure if you have some in mind that, you know, you want to put out there as well. But the one that I get a lot is that, you know, well, you know, it goes both ways. And that from me talking about colorism as a dark skinned person, there's colorism in talking about colorism because people are skeptical when I'm talking about it versus when my light-skinned sister is talking about it, right? If my light-skinned sister is saying something, it's more valid. If I, as a dark-skinned woman, am saying the same thing, I have a hidden agenda or I am just jealous or I, you know, am bitter. I have a, you know, some kind of vendetta or something to prove, right? And so even in bringing up conversations of colorism, people are practicing colorism in not listening, not being as open to listen if the message is coming from a darker skinned woman. And so I, I wonder, and this is something maybe you can share, if a light skinned person were talking about colorism, would people tell them, well, you know, it goes both ways, right? Or is that something people only say in response to me as a dark skinned woman, right? As if well, let me educate you, dark-skinned person, because you can't possibly have studied this. Or lived it. Yeah, I lived it, right? <laughs> so it's very interesting. And I, I haven't really discussed this with like light-skinned women about, have you ever heard X, Y, Z when you're talking about colorism? But I think, too, in terms of the pushback or the resistance that says, well, we don't need to talk about this because colorism goes both ways. Well... I think we don't need to associate responses to a system with the system itself, right? And so what a lot of light-skinned women experience is reactions to the system that privileges lighter skin um, in the society, right? So the system privileges light skin wholesale, right? Just systemically, that means it's ubiquitous. And so when there's bullying at school or when, you know, the dark skinned girls reject you as a friend or, you know, trip you in the bathroom, you know, or something like that, that's them reacting to a system of colorism, right? And so I think having that perspective on it might hopefully motivate light-skinned women to then be invested in dismantling that system, right? And so it's difficult to talk about, you know, backlash or retaliation from dark-skinned women without acknowledging exactly why they're doing that, right? They're doing that because they have been subjected to marginalization. They have been subjected to um, oppression and discrimination and invisibility in comparison to their lighter-skinned sisters. And I feel like I'm just talking on and on. No, it's so good. Like you can talk on and on as much as you'd like, because I really, really appreciated so much of what you just shared. And I would love to like continue just, just diving into that. First, I loved what you said in response to the divisive comments saying we need to have a united front talking about this is divisive. I think having a united front in itself is a strange thing to say. (laughs) Having a united front, how about let's actually be united and this is an obstacle to us all being actually united. Yes. (laughs) And also I say too that any so-called unity that demands my silence is not unity. Yes. (laughs) That's just old-fashioned suppression, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 
And I think, you know, related to the the second part of your answer, I would say the times where I have initiated conversations around colorism, I definitely have not experienced what you've experienced. I would say the times where I have initiated those conversations, it has kind of brought other light-skinned women out of the woodwork talking about some of the experiences that you just mentioned in saying, well, here's my experience with it. And then it is very much the recalling the stories of, you know, being told that they weren't black enough or questioning their identity and things like that, to which I usually say, thank you for sharing your experience. That is not colorist. That is not the topic at hand. That is your experience. And I'm sorry that that happened. But again, that's not the systemic issue that we're talking about here. Yeah. I have a draft of a new post called An Open Letter to Light-Skinned Women. And so I'm wanting to be more explicit. And I get a lot of direct messages and emails from light-skinned women who like span the gamut in terms of wanting to know how they can be allies and support darker-skinned people all the way to, you know, again, saying, I'm tired of this conversation because no one wants to acknowledge what I go through as a light-skinned person, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm wanting to talk more explicitly about how we can repair our sisterhood bonds in particular. You know, going back to the Alice Walker quote, she talks about Black sisterhoods in particular, because our sisterhood has been frayed over the years by not honestly and courageously addressing colorism. And so I think in order to mend our relationships as Black women, there has to be that kind of honesty and also looking at ways that, you know, for every story that I hear from a light-skinned person about being teased or alienated or told they aren't Black enough, what we're not acknowledging are the times when there's a light-skinned woman who actually delights in her preferential treatments, right? Yeah. We have to be honest that not all light-skinned women have the best intentions, right? Um, Some of them very much buy into and play into the fact that they know people prefer light skin in our society, right? And they pride themselves on having a higher social status, a higher rank than darker skinned women. And that has created distrust. So a lot of dark skinned women who encounter the other kind of light skinned women, they, you know, learn to distrust our light skinned sisters. And so for the light skinned sisters who are interested in making connections across color, that's one of the things we have to address, right? And saying, not just asking dark-skinned women to stop retaliating, but also looking to your light-skinned sisters and saying, hey, can you stop making this problem worse? (laughs) You know, by buying into the system, uh, by delighting in the advantages and the privileges. And let's actually, you know, say, we're going to work to undo this system because we see how it's hurting our community, how it is dividing our community, right? And so to the extent that I want to be friends and, you know, have a sisterly bond with dark-skinned women, I have to protect them in a way or show up for them, right? We have to show up for each other. And can dark-skinned women trust you to speak up for us, right? Can dark-skinned women trust you that when the the guy who is interested in dating you says, you know, well, yeah, I only like light-skinned women because dark-skinned women are too ghetto or something. Can we trust you as your dark-skinned sisters to say, actually, I don't buy into that stereotype and I'm not interested in, you know, 
being in a relationship with anyone who does, right? And unfortunately, a lot of dark-skinned women don't trust that our light-skinned sisters will do that for us. Absolutely. And I think so much of that is so valid. It's not for no reason because those things happen every single day. They happen every single day. And I love what you said about really repairing those sisterhood bonds, because I think that that is so incredibly important and should should be a priority for us is to rebuild that trust and and get those bonds. Because I think when we're all in a point where we have stronger relationships with one another. I mean, look at look at how much we already do and run and <laughs> make better as is. Like yes. imagine how unstoppable we would be if we were not spending our energy on these things that are really just upholding systems that don't truly benefit any of us. Even if you're on the on the lighter shade and you get quote unquote special treatment, the system still doesn't it's still not benefiting you the way you think it is. No, it's not. Yes. And actually to that point, I'm glad you said that too, because I was saying this on another panel too. I think dating and romantic relationships is one of the more visceral forms of colorism because it's Mm -hmm. kind of in your face and it is just very visceral compared to like, oh yeah, I might not get as much education. It's kind of abstract for a lot of people. I think a lot of the more systemic inequalities seem more abstract than like, oh, I got called this name or this guy said he doesn't date dark-skinned girls. But I think that example, that I, what I hope for my light-skinned sisters is that they realize it's actually dehumanizing to be fetishized for your light skin or for your hair texture, for your eyes, right? And that a lot of colorist men don't respect you in the way that you deserve to be respected. They, you might be their fantasy. They might put you on a pedestal in certain ways, but ultimately if they're valuing your skin color above, you know, character or intelligence, right? And that actually is not a display of the self-worth that you should have as well. Absolutely. Honestly, I think it's a huge (laughs) turnoff. Yeah. It's a really big turnoff. So I really appreciate you, you sharing that. Also want to ask, you know, In terms of colorism and gender, I would love to get into that a little bit more just about uh, maybe some ways that colorism impacts, you know, those who identify as men differently than those who identify as women and what that looks like. Are there also some kind of bonding or trust that needs to be rebuilt amongst gender? Yes, that's a good one. (laughs) I think the, the pattern, not the pattern, but the, the structure that has been put in place is that lighter skin and more European phenotypes are associated with femininity and softness, and, but also, you know, higher intelligence and things like that. And so when you have the white woman put on a pedestal as the ideal of femininity, of feminine beauty and feminine, all these things, then that means as Black women, the closer we are on the spectrum of, you know, human phenotypes, because they're infinitely varied, then we also have more associations to things like being soft and feminine and innocent, right? Um, So for dark-skinned women, dark skin in general is associated more so with masculinity and strength and aggression. And so dark-skinned women in a misogynistic patriarchal society 
that works against us, right? Especially in um, heteronormative mating practices, uh, but not just mating practices, even in terms of policing and arresting, arrest rates, prison sentencing, right? So for a darker skinned woman to have, be more associated with being aggressive, with being less intelligent, with being more criminal, less trustworthy, then that means you're also looked at as more criminal. And so you um, are more susceptible to enduring harsher treatment and harsher discipline in schools and you know the justice system and things like that. So when it comes to men though, who are darker skinned, the same applies in terms of the justice system, right? Well, you're aggressive, you're a criminal, you, we can't trust you. But in other areas where it's a positive to be strong, it's a, a positive for men to be aggressive, it's a positive for men to be rugged and you know, tough and masculine, right? Which dark skin is highly associated with. So that's why we see some of our men are kind of hedged are like cushions, right, when it comes to colorism. And then also just patriarchy and misogyny in general, right? So men in terms of status, right, they're not as reliant on their physical appearance to move up in society, right? Because of patriarchy and misogyny, women are judged more harshly on how we look, right? Whereas men, not so much. And then for light-skinned men, they, they are given the benefit of the doubt and terms of their level of intelligence, um, their education levels, but they're also seen as not quite as masculine, not quite as rugged or tough, right? So we see them struggle in terms of, you know, proving their masculinity, right? Especially as Black men who are light-skinned. There's a lot of interplay with that. Taking a quick pause from today's interview for a message from our Balanced Black Girl podcast partner, Peak and Valley Co. Peak and Valley adaptogen blends have been a huge part of my stress management routine and ability to create calm in my daily life. I also love adding the Nourish My Brain blend to my morning elixirs, coffee if I'm doing coffee, tea if I'm not, to really help improve focus. And while it's no secret that I love Pecan Valley blends, I talk about it all the time, I get especially excited when I hear that you all love them too. We've had several Balanced Black Girl listeners write to Pecan Valley with glowing reviews that I wanted to share one with you. This review says, I really applaud your research and the fact that this Black girl-owned product is amazing. I've been making an effort to support more Black-owned businesses this year, so Peak and Valley has my full support. I think it's imperative that we bring more awareness to living holistically and talking openly about stress, anxiety, and depression in the Black community. So these adaptogen blends really help your body better adapt to stress and stressful situations. And I encourage you to check them out. So if you would like to try Peak and Valley adaptogen blends, you can go to balanceblackgirl.com forward slash peak and valley. And you can use the coupon code balanceblackgirl, all one word for $5 off your order. Again, that is balanceblackgirl.com slash peak and valley using the coupon code Balanced Black Girl for $5 off your order of stress-fighting adaptogen blends. Let's jump back into the interview.
goodness. I mean, just really talking through all of the different ways that colorism impacts folks' lives, everything from inner feelings of masculinity, femininity, education, law enforcement. I mean, every every single area of one's life is touched and impacted. Yeah. And I think, too, that's something that a lot of people are not aware enough of. Because, again, on Twitter, right, or on TikTok, so many people want to just make it about dating preferences. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it's easy to dismiss it. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, if you relegate colorism to just a high school popularity contest, then it's easy to be like, this isn't important. And that's why people might say we have bigger things to worry about. Maybe because they aren't aware that we're not just talking about like who was the cute girl in ninth grade, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like these are impacting lives, like literally sometimes people losing their lives because of perceptions of what they look like. Yeah, because that anti-Blackness just runs that deep and touches so much. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you used the word (laughs) anti-Blackness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where it all comes from. It does. And I think that helps us think about it cross-culturally. So Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, it's the Balanced Black Girl podcast, which I I like to be able to focus on, you know, Black women. But I think Black women, in terms of our relationship to other women of color, is fraught. Because those women of color, they're like, well, I'm a a woman of color, so I experience racism, right? But if if you look like um, J-Lo, then you're not experiencing racism in the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you also brought that up because colorism is not something that is only you know, a Black American phenomenon. It is global. It happens globally in many cultures. It runs very, very deep. Mm-hmm. It does. I was on a panel on Monday for South Asian Heritage Month, month in the UK. You know, I was like, okay, I know some South Asian people who could be great for this panel, uh, but they were like, no, we want it to be inclusive because there are some issues in the South Asian community that we need to address, AKA (laughs) anti-Blackness, right? (laughs) And so they wanted to like have a Black person on there because they were acknowledging that anti-Blackness is really entrenched in a lot of Asian cultures, including South Asian cultures. And so I was really like, not inspired, but like touched by the openness, right? Uh, A lot of the women on the panel were of Indian, South Indian um, heritage and nationality. And they acknowledged that, yes, we are, you know, dark-skinned Indian women talking about colorism in our cultures, talking about the pressure to bleach our skin, you know, talking about how our aunties are gonna are telling us we're never gonna get married, you know, um, our, all these various things. But at the same time, until we deal with our own anti-Blackness, we perpetuate the system, right? The only way to make it better for ourselves, right? If we learn to love Blackness, then there's room for us too, right? And so I was really glad to hear them say that. Mm, Yeah, that's beautiful. That recognition of it is so important. So important. So I would love to transition a little bit to talk about healing, right? The other, the other side of the coin, (laughs) the other half of your, of your company name, business, business name, which is the healing portion. You know, a lot of what we've talked about is 
how deeply systemic colorism is. So obviously dismantling that system is an effort. It's not something that happens overnight. However, I would really love to talk about some ways that those who have experienced colorism can really continue pouring into themselves and healing from its effects. Yeah, I love the way you are framing the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So I think one thing I've been saying a lot lately in the past few weeks, because I think it's because of something that happened to me, (laughs) is that we, one, we don't have to wait for the world to change before we embark on our own journey of change. We don't have to wait for someone else to apologize. We don't have to wait for someone else to see the light or to acknowledge that they did wrong. For us to focus on ourselves and the healing and the self-care and the self-love that we need to take, right? So we can, if we haven't started that journey ourselves, we can, we have everything we need right now to take the first step, to take the next best step, right? Regardless of what the context is or what's going on around us. And I think that's important because I've seen and heard and spoken to a lot of dark-skinned women who are eager to, I think, like out, you know, the light-skinned girl who said something wrong, right? Or to, you know, make sure that they pay, right? Make sure that justice is served in a way that's, you know, visible and apparent, right? And so I, I see them getting like stuck in that loop, right? And so my, you know, talking and consultation with them so far is that she might never apologize. And so what are you going to do for yourself, right? People might never call her out or cancel her in terms of the culture. And so what are you going to do for your, for you, right? And also like making it about her apologizing or making it, making it about people seeing that she did wrong is giving all of your power, all of your life force to her, to the person that perpetuated this, you know, act of colorism against you. And that same amount of energy could be quickly redirected back to yourself, right? But if it is redirected back to yourself, you want it to be energy of love. And so that's the other thing is that whatever energy you're putting out to someone else, like you think you're putting out hatred or, you know, anger towards someone else, but it's you and your being and your body who is experiencing the anger, right? Is experiencing that painful, difficult emotion. And so um, cultivating the strength and the courage to forgive, I think is a huge factor in terms of healing. And I came to like an epiphany recently and I was like, okay, so A, it's hard to to heal from colorism because I feel like the wounds keep being reopened, right? I can turn on the TV tonight and be triggered by something I see in the media. I can like open my phone and see a post that is triggering, that's saying something negative about dark-skinned women. And so I realized that I have to be in a state of just perpetual forgiveness, right? Almost as if I have to turn on a tap of forgiveness and just let it default, let, make that my default setting, right? It's forgiveness. And again, we know that forgiveness is not about the other person seeing or recognizing their wrong or even changing their behavior. But it's forgiveness, you can think of it as this. I am not going to be chained or shackled to the negative energy of that, right? And I even, I came up with acronyms. I love acronyms. (laughs) And I was like, I have to go far 
to forgive, right? So far means you have to face it, you have to accept it, and you have to release it. And I think facing the fact that you're hurt, and I'm thinking about this one um, dark skin girl in particular that I've spoken to in recent months, and focusing on getting the other person to be called out or make proving that she was wrong is a way for you not to face that you are hurt by this, right? <laughs> kind of like seeking retribution is allowing you to not sit and say, oh, but I'm just hurting right now, right? So facing it. And unfortunately, as Black women, we're told to be strong. And so it's, it's popular to be unbothered, right? I kind of, I get where that's coming from and I love it in some ways, but I also think it makes people afraid to acknowledge when they are bothered, right? And I think it's hard to overcome these feelings if we're pretending like we're not bothered by it, right? So face the fact that this thing hurt you, right? And then accepting it, not condoning it, right? So acceptance doesn't mean condoning it, but accepting that it happens and you're not going to make it unhappen, if that's a word. <laughs> and again, accepting the fact that you can't control what someone else did and you, no matter how much you call them out online, you cannot determine or control them to apologize. That's just beyond your control. No matter how much you blow up their feed, you can do op-eds in the New York Times, right? And they could be called out in front of millions of people and they may still never change, right? So accepting that reality that you don't have control over them and then releasing it, right? So taking that energy and attention and redirecting it back to yourself, right? In terms of practicing self-love and self-compassion. And you know, there's, we're in still in self-care culture. So I won't, you know, dig too deep into that because there are a ton of resources. I'm sure many of them are in your podcast episodes, right? About things that you do for self-care, so. Mm, thank you so much for that. I love that acronym. I know I sure wrote it down. I think <laughs> that that is so, so helpful. And especially around, just feeling what you need to feel and being like, you know what? Yeah, this thing, it affected me. And acknowledging that I think is such a powerful, powerful practice. And that is so very helpful. So I would also just love to talk about you, your approach to wellness, how you practice self-care and, and what that looks like. So what are you doing for self-care these days? Oh, I love this topic. I don't think anyone has ever asked me. It was usually just about color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We we're usually like very, you know, narrowly focused on the issue of colorism. But I like, you know, and actually I, I definitely see that as a part of colorism healing. I, you know, posted in the past few months that colorism healing is really just healing. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning like I can't heal my issues around colorism without inadvertently. <laughs> healing a lot of other things, right? About my parents or, you know, whatever. And so being naturally introverted, I think impacts the way I approach self-care. So I need a lot of alone time. And that means if I have extroverted friends, you know, setting boundaries and saying, I know you would love to hang out three days a week, but I can maybe only do once every other week you know, and ha hoping that they understand it's not because I'm avoiding you or because I don't enjoy your company. It's just, I get drained very easily from like really intense social interactions. 
And even like when I'm doing an event, um, especially if it's like an all day event, like I need the entire next day to kind of crash, right? My mom was like, what's wrong with you? You just did like a, this really great book festival thing. And now you're, you're not getting out of bed. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I need this day to recover. Um, and so again, like self-care requires self-awareness, right? You have to be self-aware to practice self-care. Okay. The, the English nerd, <laughs> the English geek in you. I love that. So you have to know what gives you energy. You have to know for yourself, okay, when do I need to recharge, right? So some people, and I think you can ask yourself, right, after a really long, hard day at work, do you want to A, go out with your friends and just like let it all out, right? Or do you want to B, like go home and just take a bath and go to bed, right? Like which one sounds more like a way to de-stress to you, right? And so for me, I am, you know, just listening to like the experts who say like sleep matters more than you think, right? So when I'm tempted to pull an all-nighter, like I have all these project ideas and like all these things I'm working on, I could be working 24-7, but saying, okay, after eight o'clock, I am not checking any more emails, I'm not doing, you know, anything. And like for me, my mornings, I love mornings. So I try to like schedule everything in afternoon and evening, right? So that way my morning is my me time. Some people, you know, because of their schedules or their home environments, their me time has to be in the evenings. But I just love the sunrise. I love early morning, dawn, right? And fortunately, I actually enjoy exercise. (laughs) So I don't exercise, you know, just for like, you know, oh, I want flat abs or whatever. But I just feel good. Like, I just like it. It's fun to me to run or to like go rock climbing or biking or something like that. So those are things that I prioritize, right? Is, you know, sleeping, getting up early in the morning and like basking in that quiet alone time when it's kind of dusky out. And then, yeah, being as protective as I can of, you know, all right, I need to schedule things in the afternoon and need to tell my friend that this Saturday, I'm not going to go out. You know, I'm not going to hang. So good. So good. I mean, we have almost identical self-care. I'm like, we have a lot in common because I feel the same way. I'm like mornings, introvert, movement, (laughs) all of them. Um, But oh my goodness, what you said about self-awareness being key for self-care like that was like absolutely oh my goodness I don't know how I've never thought about it that way before but it's so true this is harder for extroverts I think introverts we're going to do this anyway but we have to at least even if introverted you do have to set aside some alone time some intentional alone time even if it's just an hour of journaling or an hour of reading um, so that you can become self-aware. Because <laughs> if you're always just like engaging with other people, you don't have time to sit and say, huh, I actually don't like that thing, <laughs> you know, or this actually feels uncomfortable. Or this actually, I never realized I would like this thing so much, right? And so we do have to like be intentional about looking for self-awareness, right? It's not just going to happen if we're caught up in the daily grind of things. Absolutely. Which I think is especially important given like the platform that you have, the work that you do, being an educator and educating in all these different sectors and areas, (laughs) like being able to draw out that alone time, I'm sure is incredibly important. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I recognize 
um, that was a moment of recognition right there. Like you called it out as enthralling as teaching is and as much of like a teacher's high I get. And it's like my adrenaline is like up here when I'm teaching in the moment of teaching. I A, have to have space before that because I know it is my adrenaline is going to go up. So I have to like have a battery. I have to have some gas in the tank <laughs> to sustain me through that like high of teaching. And then I know too, I have to have space after that to then settle back down. Yep. That buffer that's necessary for you to be at your best when you do have to be on. Yes. And teaching is emotional labor. I think we still as a culture have to really understand and reckon with what emotional labor is because being a teacher and like even in the fall, I just got word recently that my classes will be online again for the fall semester because of the pandemic. But like I'll have people in my family say, well, you, you, you don't do much. Like you're hard. You hardly work because you're always at home. <laughs> and I'm like, well, let's think about labor, you know, and different forms of labor, including emotional labor. And the fact that so much of what educating and teaching requires is quote unquote, invisible, right? Or even like, so this has been a big one for me recently because I've gotten way more attention on Instagram and social media than ever before. And so I have tons of DMs, people, well, first of all, I tell people I'm not a therapist. I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> so <laughs> if you need actual therapy, please seek out a licensed professional. But people, when they do message me, it is a lot of times they're in a period of distress. Yeah. They are feeling hopeless or they don't have anyone else who will listen. They don't have anyone else to talk to. And I don't know how actual therapists do it. <laughs> like, I don't know how actual counselors do it because it is so much emotional labor, right? So even setting boundaries with that, not responding to every DM, especially not right away. Like I do want to respond in some way, but not taking on the responsibility for solving people's problems, right? And definitely not giving people a sense that they have access to me 24-7, right? Just because you can send an Instagram DM at 2 a.m. doesn't mean you'll get a response within the next hour, right? And so, yeah, being not only having boundaries, but communicating boundaries, I think, is important, too. Oh, that's so important. I'm so glad you just said that because I actually think that's the hard part. Like, enforcing the boundary is so much harder than drawing the boundary. Correct. Yeah. That's where I slip up. <laughs> <laughs> Most people, all of us, that's the thing. Yes, yes. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear what being a balanced Black girl means to you. Oh, I think being a balanced Black girl means um, authenticity and having the courage to show up as your full self, right? It's, to me, that's the balance, is that you're not leaning too heavily on one side of your personality or you're not leaning too heavily on one characteristic that you have, but that you're, you become comfortable with all the facets of yourself and you, you know, bring them forward as necessary, right? And you sort of gain dexterity and skill and being able to balance the different facets of yourself 
But I do think that that requires the courage to be authentic, which is another way to say self-love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I love that you mentioned that because I think that's something that's been on my mind a lot, especially over the past few months. And we, as we have seen a lot of people really want to, wanting to step up either their allyship or just awareness of things that impact us as Black people, realizing how many of our norms are so rooted in white supremacy just around what's professional, what's acceptable, like all of these things are finally being questioned. And while I don't think we're there yet, it's my hope that we're moving towards a place where more of us can authentically be ourselves in more spaces. And I would like to see it. I don't know. I mean, I hope it happens while I can see it. Yeah. So Dr. Webb, thank you so much for being here. Can you please share how our audience can keep in touch with you, how we can follow your work? I also know that you recently released a new book that with a writing anthology of entrances and writings from people talking about their experiences with colorism. So can you tell us how we can support and take part? Yes. So colorismhealing.com is the hub where you will find all you need to know. If you can remember colorism healing, you can find me anywhere online. If you want more direct engagement, I'm most active on Instagram, but I do have a Twitter or Facebook if you prefer those platforms. And then for the, the book, you can buy a copy at colorismhealing.com backslash bookstore. And it does feature writings from an international contest that I host every year. The majority of them are women, right? And so I think that is indicative of so many things, but just wonderful people. A lot of them are first time writers, have never really been published or seen their name in a book before. So it's very fulfilling, right? To give them a space and a platform in some way, you know, to put their voices and their stories out there. So supporting the book, supporting the contest through the book sales, right, directly contributes to contest prizes, the cash prizes, the cost of publication. So definitely purchasing the book is a great read for you, but it also helps to ensure that the contest can continue in the future. Amazing. We'll have all of your information linked in the show notes with your website, social handles, and where folks can find the book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your work. I really loved this conversation. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Balanced Black Girl Podcast. I hope this conversation helped inspire you on your own personal self-care and well-being journey. To continue the conversation, make sure you check out our website at balanceblackgirl.com where you can find show notes and more information about each of our episodes. And you can stay in touch with us at Balanced Black Girl Podcast on Instagram, at Balanced Black Girl on Facebook. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps the show. Thanks again for tuning in and keep taking care.